I'm Violet Luca, digital editor of Film Comet, and today I'm joined by Mark Harris. I write film history books. I'm working on a biography of Mike Nichols, and starting next month, I'll be writing a monthly column for Vulture. And Eric Hines, film critic and journalist. I write for various publications, including Film Comet, and I'm also associate curator of film at the Museum of the Moving Image. Excellent. Uh, thank you both for coming today. And we're going to be discussing something you know, sort of fundamental uh, influences, which writers or people maybe in other arts have influenced our own writing and our criticism, you know, in terms of prose, critical approach, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I guess I'll start with you, Eric, who are some big influences for you? I think the the one that, that comes up immediately in terms of film criticism is Jonathan Rosenbaum. Uh, I, I didn't... I didn't study film necessarily in college. I took some classes, but I wasn't thinking of myself as being somebody who wanted to have a career writing about film. In fact, I was I was more of a fiction writer and a poet to some degree, and and that's sort of that's basically how I, I proceeded post college for a while too, in terms of what I read and what I gravitated toward. However, from a very young age, it was almost a hobby that I would read film criticism. As much as I would watch films, I would read film criticism in conjunction with watching, but also on its own. Like I, I grew up in New York and I would read the Daily News and I would just read every single capsule review. I would read the full reviews. We were not a New York Times house, so I, I didn't have any sort of access to Vincent Canby or anything like that at that time. Probably for the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, at the time, I, I, it would have been interesting to sort of see that type of more, sort of slightly more, you know, intelligent and, and, and uh, you know, slightly more breadth to, to, the, to the reviews than that. But that said, like there were, there were, Deadline weekly uh, film critics that that I read religiously, but almost unconsciously of who they were. Um, but it was in college when I encountered Jonathan Rosenbaum. I went to school in the Chicago area and was able to read him on a weekly basis in the Chicago Reader. And a lot really opened up for me there because uh, I didn't really quite get at that point that film could be a way of talking about everything, that it could be a way of talking about politics and class and race and philosophy and history and uh yeah i that became a bit of an obsession for me and again it wasn't all of a sudden i want to be a film critic but it opened up things for me so much that 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 hobby eventually became something that i couldn't ignore and and eventually wanted to pursue but i don't know if i mean we could talk about like why 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 rosamond but or if you want to hold on that no yeah absolutely yeah i mean for i i like as I already said broadly about it, but but for me there were a couple pieces that that still stick in my mind as being sort of foundational pieces for me. Um, which again, I don't know if they would not again, but I don't know if they would be that way for me now. But at that time, at that age, they were. Um, his piece on Mississippi burning um, was incredibly important to me. It's basically taking a a two thousand word review or, or something along those lines in terms of length and starting with a personal history of his own. Uh, being a young boy in the South in 1961 and encountering being in danger um, for his own life because he, of his proximity to black uh, kids um, and then finds a way of sort of undressing the film for all the things, uh, you know, 
prescient in a sense or in a sense or or showing us how many of our conversations that were happening now have been happening for a while in terms of Hollywood mm-hmm. basically this is a this is a, a a tragedy a black story that get that had to be told through the the lens of of white protagonist mm-hmm. um and and fictionalized to the point of being unrecognizable to who the, those people actually were but does that wonderfully and the other one is is Star Wars I mean I grew up on Star Wars Star Wars is meaningful to me and to discover that he had written in 1977 a piece that basically called the film out for its fascistic tendencies, for um, its it sort of uh, desensitizing uh, nature in terms of, of, of violence and spectacle and disaster and uh, war uh, was absolutely sort of turned my life, my, my, my critical life around. With the Star Wars piece, was it sort of like understanding that it's more. It's not necessarily about an opinion, but an argument when dealing with film. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly that that realizing that that there's a difference there. That it's not just about opinion, opinion, but it's an argument. But then also just that there is that there could be real anger and uh, uh, and true opposition in terms of where th- a piece of art is coming from. Mm-hmm. That it can be a piece of entertainment and a successful one at that. But there could be real problems with that, and there could be pro- well, problems with the fact that it's as compelling and convincing and persuasive as it is. I saw it when it came out. His piece on Schindler's List is another one that's incredibly meaningful to me. I don't necessarily agree with a lot of it anymore, but it, it, it was he basically could acknowledge that a movie moved him, was important, um, could identify why, and then also talk about his problems with that thing. That it could be all of these things. That it doesn't have to be yes or no, like or dislike, um, an argument for or an argument against. That it could just be a consideration mm-hmm. and a deep and layered one too. Um, so yeah, no, yes. I mean, the fact that it's an argument, not just opinion, totally. But there's the, even nuance within that. What about you, Mark? Well, uh, I I have a couple of different answers to that. I'd say. Um, when I was young, uh, Pauline Kael was a big influence on me, I would say positively and negatively. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, I think, I thought when I was young and I think now that she was a really brilliant argumentative writer. And uh, of course, so much has been said about the um, conversational uh, style that she kind of pioneered, the way she would build an argument over paragraphs, the way she would personalize the experience of watching a movie. Um, and uh, also what what really wowed me then and what I still think is important is that she seemed to have this huge life outside of movie criticism, which she freely, you know, cherry-picked for her movie criticism. You got the sense of someone who spent her time thinking about politics, reading, having fights with friends, having fights with enemies, thinking about other art forms, thinking about uh, how movies relate to other art forms, thinking about how movies relate to the world. Uh, She was not someone who grew up in a little box with movies as her only friend, and that had a great impact on me. Now, there were things that I think had a negative impact on me about her. You know, I think when you're uh, in your mid-20s, that kind of peremptory, sneering, dismissive, <laughs> uh, bullying use of the word we, uh, you know, just the brutalization of, of uh, not only movies, but of the people who made movies and the people who liked the movies that she didn't like or the people who didn't like the movies that she did like, felt like a great posture to emulate. And I, I 
I see that a lot in young critics now. I, social media only exponentially uh, amplifies that tendency. Mm-hmm. You know, pronounce, smirk, and run. Um, and I, I, that was something that was definitely a part of my own writing when I was younger that I would like to think I've largely moved away from. So, so she was someone who was an influence on me and someone who I uh, struggled with and, and have struggled with over the years. Um, the other the other two things that had a big impact on me were, one, when I was in college, it was at the moment when Andrew Saris and Jim Hoberman and David Edelstein were all writing for The Village Voice at the same time. And I read The Voice really avidly. And the the seeing their three voices in and out of sync, you know, Saris, the absolutely stern, stylistically rigid auteurist who began every review the exact same way, but like had his vision of how to make a movie argument and clung to it. Um, Jim Hoberman, who was just unbelievably erudite and politically engaged and, and absolutely saw all movies as, um, political acts and, and as, uh, sociological acts and uh, David Edelstein who was also very very smart but extraordinarily funny and really uh, engaged with the uh, idea of movie going as as an ongoing conversation that was illuminating for me um, just in terms of like a weekly lesson in all of the different ways and all of them were different from Kale um, all of the different ways you could go at criticism and then since you asked about influences, I'd say the last thing was not criticism so much as just the experience of being in college at the very last moment before VCR culture, which then became DVD culture began. So if you wanted to see movies, you uh, had to go see them on uh, a big screen. And movie retrospectives were the sort of weekend hub of social life. There were half a dozen different film societies. They they all programmed four or five nights a week. You could, in a weekend, go see uh, half a dozen different movies. And there was a small film department full of professors who really encouraged us to do that. So just that experience of old movies and new movies together um, as a, a kind of ecstatic group education, uh, that's something I still really love the experience of watching an older movie with people and talking about it uh, that probably had more influence on the kind of film history work I do than any single critic did. You would be talking to people, you know, rep fiends that probably still exist in some form or another. Now, um, what sort of, I guess, knowledge would you gain from that? Was it purely anecdotal or would it be like, you know, I saw this when, (laughs) you know, one of the, one of the first um, film classes I took was taught by a professor who had us see, it was a history of American film class, and uh, we'd see three or four different movies during the course of a week because the class was done in conjunction with these film societies. But whatever the central movie of that week was, whether it was Scarface or Stagecoach or The Best Years of Our Lives, we would have to see twice in a day mm-hmm. and um, on a big screen. And that second experience that nighttime review of the movie just taught me a great deal about 
what you see a second time that you don't see a first time, the different ways to look at movies, the uh, how you experience a movie if you spend the whole film looking at composition or sound design or or thinking about the structure of the screenplay or thinking about directorial choices, um, stuff you can't do the first time necessarily when you're just watching it. Um, not that I believe that all movies have to be seen twice, but but as a teenager beginning to understand movies as as something worthy of study, I was really influenced by that. In comparison to that, I don't I don't think I was ever encouraged to do that. For me, it was growing up solidly within the, the era of VCR culture, and it was somehow grabbing onto whether sort of reading things here or there or books or friends, knowing the films that I should see, seeking those out, and then watching them over and over again to try to understand them. But yeah, it felt a little bit, it it felt as much coming from the practice of watching movies over and over again than doing it to study necessarily. You know, there was like being quite young and all of a sudden just getting that bootleg copy of return of the Jedi and just watching it over and over and over and over again. Not just in, in a sense I was studying because I was memorizing the movie and memorizing how it was working, but I wasn't being led through it. It took a while before anybody sort of led me through right. a film in any way and, and, and guided to toward what to look for. And, and I don't particularly feel sentimental about the pre VCR era. The only thing that I, I mean, I think the, the, wide availability of movies and the ability to rewatch them um, is is a completely good thing. Although I do think that there's a, a real difference, uh, a before and after line, uh, if you had the opportunity to watch a favorite movie 16 times growing up or 80 times, and if you didn't. I mean, the one thing that I'll sentimentalize about the uh, pre-availability era, I don't know what to call it, you know, the movies BC, um, (laughs) is uh, this great, excited feeling uh, when you were young that it was now or never. Like, this might be your one chance to see this movie because if you were to ever see it again, unless you had, you know, HBO, um, maybe you would see it on network TV, chopped up, interrupted by commercials with all the good parts taken out. Um, That gave a certain kind of urgency uh, to movie going, I remember going to the Carnegie Hall Cinema and seeing a revival of Bertolucci's 1900, which was playing for like two days there, and thinking, "This is my chance. I'm I'm never going to get to see this movie again. Like, how am I? Who's ever going to show 1900?" And and that kind of it turns you into a really open-eyed watcher. Like you are there to take in as much of this movie as you can in your one sitting, because you might not get back to it again for a long time. Mm-hmm. That was fun. But everything else about it was not fun. <laughs> and this is a little off your topic, but... It, they're, Extremely. They're, I'm ashamed. I'm so ashamed of you. <laughs> I, I mean, there is something special about um, submitting to watch a movie completely on its own terms. And its terms are do not include a pause button. Um, and they don't include your living room, necessarily. Uh, you know, when you're... I, I think... Uh, I mean, I'm an avid DVD watcher. I'm an avid pause button user. I'm by no <laughs> means a purist about this stuff. But there's no question that when you go to a movie theater, you sit down and you watch it uninterruptedly, you're, you're seeing it differently. And it gets into your bones and your bloodstream in a way that it's very, very hard to simulate at home. And maybe we can use that to turn back to the act of mm-hmm. writing. Do you feel... Um, 
Do you feel like you produce or you're approaching works differently when you have that theatrical experience as opposed to an at-home experience? Well, I have never actually written movie criticism professionally. I've never been like a reviewer. I've, mm-hmm. I've written critically about movies, but um, I haven't had the opportunity or the burden of you know working on uh, assignment, just getting told, review this movie, write this many words, do it by such and such a date. I understand what you're saying, but I'm trying to get to the experientiality of it, you know? I, I Because it's always going, no matter what you write about film, it's always subjective. I think people have to really take responsibility for making sure that their their level of engagement is up to what it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can absolutely take in a movie uh, on a DVD and or, or even streaming, and I, I don't think you can get it as... as fully as if you're in a theater because there's just not as much visual information in the image but but you can certainly watch it responsibly and write responsibly about it i think it's just harder mm-hmm. um and and if you're distractible it's especially hard yeah well I mean, it has it has i think there are things to be said for for either i mean, I, I love watching films on the big screen i i do think that the environment of a press screening, say, well, not ideal, in fact, has some major drawbacks, um, is uh, a sort of collective, everybody's, you know, you have accountability. It's a collective room of accountability where everybody's there to, to see this thing and to pay attention to it and to take notes, most likely, um, that I do appreciate and and, and think that I, I've done some good watching and thinking in that environment. I also think that working from home, if 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 I'm engaged with it and I'm, I force myself to be and I take it seriously enough, um, can also be a, a laboratory of sense. You know, where, where yeah, I'm taking a million notes. I'm maybe pausing every now and then just to sort of like actually keep up with my writing and finish my thought before proceeding. It's not about being distracted. It's engaging with it. I think it can work both ways. I mean, in a perfect world, I almost feel like it would be great to be able to watch everything on the big screen in some accessible, available way. And then to follow up with multiple viewings where I can stop and start and search and look and, and quote um, because I very much appreciate that, that ability both to, both to, to, look, to, look for, to look for evidence, you know, to look for evidence to make an argument one way or the other. And that is really afforded by being able to control the player in some way. Is there another person that you feel exemplifies this uh, approach? Uh, in terms of this newer way of talking about this? Or, or just or, thoroughness. Oh, thoroughness. That's a, Let me rephrase the question. Yeah. What is what is important to you, yeah. what you look for in writing, and what you aspire to achieve in your own writing? It's a lot of stuff. You know, I feel like there's a lot of writers bringing a lot of things that I totally envy, you know? Um, I, I think... Uh, I think like your colleague Nick Rapold is really great at, at identifying what the thing is and con- and really sort of boring into that, but doing it in a, in a sort of engaging and entertaining and enlightening way, but it's very much trying to identify what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Kent Jones does that to, to, in, a, in, in his own and different way, too. Um, uh, and both of these writers are, 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 are thorough, detailed uh viewers responsible people um but i'm also like uh, you know 
Mark and I, before we went on air, we talked about, about Wesley Morris. He's somebody who I think is a great viewer as well, but he's doing something very, very different. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's having a conversation with the film. It's having a conversation with the phenomena of the film as how, is, how it intersects with the culture, what it means to our collective conversations that we're having consciously or not. Uh, I, I love that to death, you know? Um, and, and there's sort of, there's a lineage to all of this. There's, this is all coming from different places. Manny Farber is incredibly important to me because uh, I, I encountered Manny Farber and I realized that it's not about whether or not I agree with somebody. In fact, he's often writing about things I've never seen and, and, and don't even know if, it's, if I'm going to see or if I'll have an ability to see. But the writing is a work of art and the writing is not attempting to be a work of art, it just is because this is how he's thinking. It's propelled in such a way um, that it's not looking at itself as it's doing it. It's, it's you know, it's... Um, it's engaging with the thing in such a minute, detailed way that it becomes something abstracted at that point, which I think is gorgeous. You know, um, again, not not only do I necessarily agree with it, not only do I do I do I know if I'll ever see what he's writing about, but I don't even necessarily always know what he's writing about through what he's writing, and I love that too because it's a, it's to me it's, and I think that comes back to getting into this through fiction, through literature, so thinking of writing as being a, a, a purely creative <clears throat> but communicative tool is that like Manny Farber is somebody who I feel like is doing that. He's writing short stories with his, with his reviews and makes me incredibly excited. The possibility of that, even if I'm doing something else and, and, and going after something else in my criticism, the fact that the writing could wind up that way or, or could have that function is incredibly exciting and humbling and I don't think I'm ever, ever gonna get there but I think about that all the time in terms of it being in the air. I feel influenced right now by, by people who take approaches that I couldn't take or wouldn't take. And, and it's funny, when we talk about influences, your first instinct is to sort of look backwards for monuments in your early life. But I feel absolutely as influenced by the various forms of film criticism I take in now, this week, as I do by uh, the stuff I grew up with. I mean, Wesley Morris is a great example. If you read him on uh, The Paperboy or Magic Mike XXL, you see a guy who has two eyes fully on the movie, but 16 other eyes that I don't have on race, on sexuality, on the idea of trash, on the film history of the genre he's writing about, on the film history of the creators of the movie he's writing about, on sexual politics, on social politics. And so... Uh, and on his own reactions. I mean, he's, I think to be a really great critic, you have to watch yourself carefully too, not just the movie. And Wesley is brilliant at placing it in a particular universe, defining his own placement in that universe, defining the universe itself. And so you, he gives you not only a brilliant reading of a movie, but the means to agree or disagree with him because you know exactly where he's coming from because he articulates mm -hmm. it so brilliantly. I find myself uh, fascinated by and struggling with right now uh, a number of young critics who are determined to see old movies almost purely through the lens of contemporary racial or sexual politics. I think that's not an approach I take, but it's an approach that's out there, and I... It seems to be the dominant one. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's something that I struggle with as a reader. Um, it's, not my, it, it's not my bent at all, but I don't want to close myself off to those readings. And I, I like 
I like criticism if it's intelligent that gives me something to argue with. I'm really fascinated by um, critics who uh, take a more um, visual approach, who, who, who are criticizing through video essays, which is something that uh, I don't have either the technical means or remotely the the uh, non-Luddite brain to to do. Um, and I'm uh, I'm interested in slash frustrated by, I've joked about this a lot on, on Twitter and in social media, uh, ranking obsessives, you know, yeah. that, that, that every filmmaker gets uh, his entire body of work reordered with every new release. And, and this kind of um, hyper-comparative and also... To me, frustratingly, auteurist. Uh, yeah, it's like way auteur, of, auteur theory for idiots. <laughs> well, well, I'm not going to say idiots because I think a lot of I smart will. people are, are are doing this, and a lot of people who do it um, take it uh, do it as playfully as it as it should be done. They don't they don't yeah. take it as seriously. But but I think it's a guy phenomenon largely, and I think you know for young critics, you sure are interested in. The hierarchicalizing male mm. directors, you know. Um, I've never, my approach has never been purely auteurist, I think, because I'm a reporter as much as a critic. I've always been really fascinated by the way movies are made and the choices that go into them. And a lot of those are directorial choices, and a lot of them are not. Mm. I mean, the auteur of a movie, if we're talking about what shapes a movie, can be its star, can be its studio, can be its budget, can be uh, its producer, um, can be some combination of all of those things and its director. And so for me, you know, uh, especially as the husband of a screenwriter, I'm always incredibly frustrated when uh, I read... uh, a review that says, you know, what the director gets so right about this story is, and I just think, oh, you know, but there was someone else there. There was actually a <laughs> script, you know, maybe maybe the writer actually got the thing right about the story. Um, that's that's a long digression, but it is just to say, influences for me happen daily. My the uh, the biggest influence on the next thing I write could be the next thing I read. I do think in terms of talking about criticism and, and, and our influences also is like who we respond to now. Um, I, I think that this notion of, of listing is worth sitting on a little bit because, or sitting on, dwelling on for a moment um, in that I've, I've done plenty of lists in my, in my day. Every year I come up with a list and I, I think there can be value there. I think there can be, it can be a, a lens through which we can look at somebody or get at ideas or be provocative more often than not. For the most part, though, I don't think that it serves the art. I think for the most part, unless there is a, a real argument that you're going to follow up um, from from the listing, it, it tends to be something that actually is more about the writer than it is about the the director or or, or the form. Um, because we're measuring our lists against each other. Oh, wow, I would put that here. I would put that there. So we're measuring our perspectives against each other, which is not useless, but it's actually distracting from supposedly the thing that we're looking at, which is a body of art. This is funny, because I asked a friend of mine who is like obsessed with lists, what is the appeal? And he said exactly that. He said exactly what you said, where it's like, well, I just want to see what this other person says, and then I can measure what... I think versus what they think. And I'm like, which is easy to sort of send that this tends to be boys that they're measuring against each other. But <laughs> I, I get no it. Freudian, no Freudian, no <laughs> Freudian. 
Uh, it doesn't take Freud. I mean, uh, I get it, though, with 10 best lists, because yeah. I like reading 10 best lists for exactly, I, I would define them exactly the same way you do, but I think it's like, you know, your uh, Tinder profile or something. It's like, t- tell me tell yeah. me the 10 movies that you liked the best last year, and, and maybe I'll know a little something, especially if you do more than just list them, about where you're coming from as a critic not not so i know whether i like you or not mm-hmm. because you know it, it's a, it's about what you say about the movies not about your list but right. but right. i think those lists have value i don't especially care whether you think miller's crossing is two steps better or one step worse than barton fink yeah. that's not going to tell yeah. me a lot about you as a critic no Same um here. yeah no, I think that's that's very very limiting. And again, again, it, it doesn't say. I don't think it says much about you as a critic, and I don't think it says anything about the Coen Brothers. Really right. Does. That that I think that's a really fair question. Like, what are you, what are you interested in illuminating by a list? And if it's, if the answer is your own taste, okay. Mm-hmm. I, like, mm-hmm. I think that has a place in mm-hmm. criticism because there's a certain kind of list where you can say. Um, this is what I'm really about. Like if I would love to know your list of the five movies you've seen the most often or the five movies that make you laugh the hardest. Cause I mm-hmm. think that that is really self exposing in a potentially interesting way. Absolutely. It's a, yeah. Cause it's about sensibility. Right. Yeah. And your sensibilities as they measure up against a single filmmaker's work mm-hmm. is, I don't think that actually offers much at all. You know, yeah. Well, because I think this gets back to what you said earlier about um, watching yourself as you write. I think that's an interesting concept to get into more because there's obvious there's this very annoying tendency maybe from Roger Ebert who, because people, there are definitely critics who do this well, but it's uh, this, I would say, aside from, you know, treating films as uh, ideological or conduits, conduits for ideology and not necessarily visual things, there's also this there's a large tendency to be like, well, when I was a child and watching and I loved these movies and and let me tell you about what I thought, the use of I in a way that's not useful. Sort of a personal history, but in a very boring way. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I don't have hard and fast rules about it, though. Like, I think there's absolutely a place for first-person criticism. Yes. I think there's a place for uh, political readings of movies in fact yes. sometimes i wish we we had more of them um but but i also think in any of those cases it's it's important to um be clear with yourself and so with your reader about where you're coming from like if you're using uh if you're using first person uh in in a critical piece why are you doing it? Like, mm-hmm. presumably, you're 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 trying to say to the reader on some level, I am responding to this movie because of this information about myself that I'm going to share with you. It's 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 almost like a a not not saying don't trust me, but it's saying I think you need to understand a couple of things about me so that you will understand why I saw this movie yeah. this way. I think that's. Fair, and I don't think that's the same thing as as sort of criticism as diary keeping, which you do see sometimes. Yeah. Um, uh, so I don't like. There's not there's not any one type of 
criticism, I think I would say is just uniformly a terrible way to go about no. it. But but ch- challenge me on that, Eric, because I bet you can think of one. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, I'm I'm also not. I don't think hard and fast rules are are, are useful. But I, and and I and I mean, again, I, I brought up Rosenbaum and his Schindler's List review is being one of the most influential r- reviews in my life. And it's a review in which he says, "I cried my eyes eyes out in this movie, and this is why I think that's pro- that's a problem." Um, I think that's really useful. It's yeah. so useful to be able to watch yourself responding to something. And again, I think in a sense, he's the sort of writer who gets too, is too skeptical of his own emotions in writing about uh, how effective something can be. But I know that about him. And that's really useful to know that about him and to see him questioning himself over the, in that way. But yeah, of course, there, there's also... I was, I, I, as you were talking, work. I was thinking about something I was just writing today and, and thinking about documentary films and when documentary filmmakers put themselves in the film or how they frame it in a certain way to imply their own presence. And there is, uh, there's a difference between putting yourself in there to basically say, hey, I'm a person and I'm here and I'm flawed and this is through my lens and let's all figure out what we're looking at together to, to simplify and to... to, to bracket a lot of different types of ways of doing it all into into one category and then there's also guys i'm kind of cool and funny <laughs> right yes so let's or i look. think i'm cool and funny no, but, and yeah, actually... but, that's, but that's the idea it's like i'm kind of cool and funny and you're gonna sort of follow me around here and we're gonna have a great time because i'm engaging and funny right. and sometimes that can work but often it doesn't and it's more often than not uh something that gets in the way yeah. and i do think that there's a first person criticism that can do that too one thing i struggle with a lot lately is when is it appropriate or not appropriate for me to, I mean, my byline will tell you that I'm a man, but when do I identify myself explicitly as white? When do I identify mm-hmm. myself explicitly as gay? I resist a kind of identity politics-driven criticism mm-hmm. where everything I say about something, you know, has to be filtered through that, and yet... You know, I I thought about this. I didn't write about Chirac, which is a movie that I really liked and was interested in. But I thought about it a lot. And I thought if if I were to write about this, who I am and how I was coming to it would almost have to be a part of what I wrote. Um, I, I don't know that I would know how to do it. And yet, you know, I don't, I don't ever want to be told that I am sort of decredentialed from writing about something because of any demographic category uh, I might fit into, nor do I want to be told that I have special license to yes. um, mm-hmm. comment. You know, I think it would be just as bad for me to say, you know, well, you know, as a gay man, I'm telling you that this gay film is not approved. You know, <laughs> you, you can't, that's just a, a really, I think, specious form of, criticism but it's i i think um i was also really brought up to believe that that is a uh not a great way to go as a critic generationally and i think there's a really big generational split about that that i'm interested in kind of watching and tracking and and charting my own struggle with i mean i'm struggling with that a bit as well um the moment I'm not writing often enough that I'm engaged, that I ha- I'm confronted with, okay, how do I write about Chirac? But, um, but I'm thinking about it a lot, and I see the way that other pieces get talked about and tweeted about, and the way that other writers get talked about in that way. And I think there's valuable, I think there's really valuable 
stuff to come out of this, and it is coming out of this, and that's important. At the same time, yeah, I, I maybe it's because of the generation that I grew up through as well. Maybe it's because I <clears throat> remember distinctly another era of 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 where identity politics were were the thing, were the, mm-hmm. the way that we talked about art, you know, and and passing through that and, and developing a certain uh, way of thinking myself as a writer and thinker and a human in relation to that, um, that this wave is is as 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 exciting and as 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 much potential as there is for things to shift because of it, which I, I there is also a, a, a bit of trepidation and fear about that too, selfishly. As much as there is about culturally, but selfishly, the sense of like, am I, I've done all this work to become a person who thinks and feels a lot about a lot of things and tries to um, be open to things and has evolved and has changed and is all that irrelevant to the fact that I'm a white male. Right. Um, That is demoralizing and tough because I do think that I have more to offer than that. Um, But for some people that that's always going to be what I bring and that's always what I am. Um, now, I don't think I'm being disenfranchised by that remotely, but in terms of uh, being able to effectively communicate and 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 to deal with the art and conveying my feelings about it, I I worry about there being other things that get in the way of that. Yeah, it's not about disenfranchisement at no, all. Sometimes no. it, it's so much smaller than that in sure. a way. It's about the literally the frustration of a one-on-one conversation in which you can feel yourself being reduced to type, mm-hmm. which I yes. think nobody likes. Um, yeah. And 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 sometimes I kind of think that there's nothing we can really do it with uh, about it, but butt our heads up against that wall and and realize that it's not an argument we're always going to win. Yeah, you know, because yeah. I think, or at least to me, what seems to be the idea behind this is that it's like, well, if you know a black woman approaches this film, she will have she will be able to bring something to it via her experience in the world that a white man would not. And in my, in a lot of times, it's like I read something and it's like, well, this person still just regurgitated the press release. Like they really, like whether they're a woman who they are, they didn't, they didn't, you know. There's nothing fresh here. And that, like, that can happen, and yet a black woman is going to write about Chirac if she chooses to in a way that I can't. And right. she's going to see things in that movie that I don't see. Absolutely. Um, and and, and uh, register things differently. And so, in some ways, absolutely, I feel like this is an essential correction of decades of there not being a straight white male voice because that was just the voice that was who everybody was supposed to be i mean we we forget that you know pauline kale uh often wrote really explicitly as a woman and mm-hmm. and that that was one of the more interesting things about what she she did so i don't mind these voices or those approaches at all it's frustrating to see it applied in a really reductionist way it's bullying you know well sometimes well i'm never i'm never going to say that i'm bullied by by another voice but but um it's it's i'm talking about the responses to writing sometimes or who 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 is writing i i've i don't i've never felt bullied um and i think it can be reductionist within a piece as much as within a reaction Mm -hmm. to a piece you know there there are there are it it can be self-limiting uh to 
see a movie only through the prism of your own identity rather than to use your identity and your experience to communicate uh, some truth about the movie more deeply, which really is possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, not to... Not to harp on this too much but I think it does it's a great illustration of what you're saying is I think of of Wesley's piece on Magic Mike XXL where instead of an opportunity for him to talk about his own ogling of, of male bodies he's talking about straight women doing that right and identifying or trying to understand that experience and thrilling to that again so where he's coming from and who he is is not nearly as important as how he's able to open himself up to how somebody else is responding to that and what that might seem like to him or what the film is telling him what's important or what's appealing or what's sexy or whatever that is exciting that's great criticism and that is what I think we all aspire to to some to some degree which is not to just let who we are and where we've come from define how we look at the world but to let things that we're encountering in the world help us understand other ways of looking at the world yeah that's such an incredibly powerful thing about what cinema can do um so the idea to reduce it just down to who we all are on paper and how each of those things interact with with a work of art is incredibly limited and on the other hand wesley couldn't have written that piece in a detached anonymous olympian you know down from the mountaintop tone like you you have to like he gives you what you need to have about who he is and where he's coming from but what he gives you is super specific and to the point and Mm -hmm. and so it all in a way it's a selfless act of writing because what he's sharing with you about himself is what will shed light on the movie or what will open up the piece for you. It's Mm -hmm. not about him, Mm -hmm. you know, or if it is about him, it's about him in the service of the job he's doing. Right. Somewhat related to that, but, but thinking about this in general, in terms of film criticism, where we come to it, how we respond to it, what we do with it. I think of uh, something that he's probably said this on multiple occasions, but I heard him say it uh, at a talk here with Richard Payne years ago, but Olivier Assayas, um, uh, he put on a, there was basically a program where he was showing clips of some of his favorite films and it was, it was something called the effect of like the films of my life. And, um, and, 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 and it was set up as if like you know, he was going to talk about films that influenced his work and he wound up shifting almost immediately and saying, I'm actually not that interested in talking about movies that influence movies. I want to look at movies that affected me as a person and shifted my whole way of thinking about being a person. Those things probably then made their way into movies of mine, but I'm not interested in tracing that because I don't, that's not a relationship I'm interested in. I'm interested in the way film influences life and the way that life influences films. And I think writers like Wesley are, are constantly sort of doing that. Like you get the sense, almost, you know, and, and, and having talked to him in person too, there's a sense of, of there's an experience of watching the movie, then there's a walk away from the theater, <laughs> and, and then the things that that movie projects into the world and then brings back to you and then makes its way into the paper. And there's something about the way that Asayas talked about that that I thought was incredibly refreshing and important because you can't help when you are writing about something and obsessing about an art form and then having conversations about that art form with people that it, it can get closed. It can get closed as if there's that in, the in-between step never really happens. It's happening, of course, because we have our real lives and you've written a piece in, a, in the real world in a real setting, 
but there's no sense of that coming into it. There's no sense of of uh, yeah passing through the world before it makes its way back onto the page. Well, and I think sometimes you have to ask, do we all have our real lives? Because the one the one kind of criticism that I do find really unrewarding to read is criticism that acknowledges nothing but the experience of seeing movies. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, that you know that Asias's line about. Uh, uh, not being interested in movies as only as they relate to movies, I think is an affliction. Um, and, mm. and God knows, you know, I went through a period when I was young where all I wanted to do was see movies and relate them to other movies because it's like you're, you're putting together a gigantic puzzle for yourself and it gets more and more exciting. But if your only frame of reference is going to movies, you're not going to be that interesting a critic mm-hmm. because you're not that interesting a person. And I don't mean that cruelly. I mean, you know, you. I think you are as interesting a critic as you are an interesting thinker, and you are as interesting a thinker as you are an interesting person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what you said about Wesley and the walk away from the theater mattering, boy, does that matter. Mm-hmm. The time you spend between the time the movie ends and the time you give voice to your opinions should mm-hmm. ideally be more than the time it takes you to turn on your phone yes. and log yes. on. Yes. Um, and and I'm not saying that instant reactions don't have their place, but they are not criticism. Yeah. They're a great little piece of performance, and that's it. Yeah. That's all they are. Yeah. Well, speaking of, are there other... Um, critics, art critics, or even artworks that have influenced your writing? Like non-film critic writers, etc. Sure, um, but it's, it's hard to trace exactly which ones have made their way into my writing. You know, um, there's... Uh, I was, I who are you reading? I went through... <laughs> well, as somebody who watches movies for a living, that's always a perilous and... and and, and shameful question or shaming question because not nearly as much as I should be reading. Um, a lot of other criticism. Uh, but I mean, Susan, I went through a whole period where Susan Sontag meant the world to me. Um, and there's, that's still a part of me that's still in there. Um, there are things like, like Rilke is really important to me in a certain way, a certain tenor, a certain way of, 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 of talking about art in the world. Uh, you know, and from, from from way back, people like Herman Melville are important to me. But actually, Herman Melville's nonfiction about his own work and his own letters and his diaries remain really important to me because of the humility and the panic and the terror and the self-doubt in there. You know, mm-hmm. and so probably that sort of comes from being a, a fallen believer uh, in my life that the, I, I still gravitate toward the anxiety um, and the ability to achieve great things, but always wondering whether or not you're doing as much as you can be doing or do as well as you can be doing. I relate to that and, and probably almost too much. The, and, and it's one of the things that I enjoyed when I was doing more deadline criticism was that sense of this almost enjoying the Sisyphusian aspect of it, of, of, of every week there's, a, there's three or four more and I don't know if any of it was any good or would stick, but I was in it and I cared and I, and I, and I tried and then let's try it again tomorrow. Um, something about that that I valued uh, in a way that I never thought I would when I was writing, I started off writing for Reverse Shot, exclusively long form essayistic um, pieces and I never thought that I would get so much out of of that, but again, that might be just sort of like like a former <laughs> a fallen uh, Christian approach to things. Um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm sort of going all over the place, but yeah, I, I 
it, but that gets at something else that, that you were talking about, Mark, as well as is, uh, or my t- read on what you were saying, which is that I, I, th- I think that humility is an undervalued virtue in writing. And the idea of showing up as being an authority and having to be authoritative about what you're talking about is overrated and, 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 and mostly detrimental, I think. So the idea that you can show up and, and basically let us know who you are or what you do or do not know, um, you can do that either explicitly or not, but having some humility about what, about what you're doing and how you're trying to do it. And I tend to gravitate and have gravitated towards a lot of authors, um, critics of various arts, as well as, uh, as, as essayists and, and, and artists who, who, who bring that. Yeah, I, I think it's beautifully put, Eric. And, and it's funny. We're, I mean, we're using the word influences, but I don't think any writer would say, ever say, like, I want to be like this writer or I want to be more like this writer. You're never... It's never imitative, and I guess one thing that moves me right now in terms of reading criticism in any discipline is um, anybody who admits that he or she didn't understand something or is struggling with something or doesn't exactly know what their reaction was or was awed by something. I mean, all of those are forms of humility that are much, much more interesting for me to read um, than absolute certainty. And I, I think there is a place in criticism uh, for the occasional stentorian declaration, but not nearly as much of a place for it as it's given. A, a critic who is genuinely struggling with something, um, who is ambivalent about something, who is of two minds about something, is a critic I'm probably really going to enjoy reading. And and I, to the extent that I do critical work myself, it's something I really try to keep in my own writing. I, I want the struggle when I'm struggling to be on the page. And, mm. and not in some sort of indulgent, watch me work this out thing, but... Criticism is a way of talking about movies, and you know, talking about movies is about much more than just pronouncing your certainties. It's it's about struggling. It's about being open to the fact that something uh, might have escaped you, or that your. I felt this a lot when I saw Chantal Ackerman's last movie, No Home Movie, where which begins with a very very long single shot, uh, and I tried to write about my experience of being engaged by it, being disengaged by it, being mm-hmm. pissed off at it, thinking it's it's now gone from too long to too, too long, mm-hmm. struggling with what the intent of that too longness was, mm-hmm. thinking about what I was actually supposed to be looking at in the frame, think, thinking about lunch and, <laughs> and you know, the sure. next movie I was going to see. You know, I tried to be honest about my my, my own struggle to react to it and... and um, that's I I try to hold on to that because I really like it in other writing. Well, and that, and me too, and, and and I think that that gets at something we haven't talked about too much, which is, which is the the bleed between the film and the writing about the film, the critic, the viewer, and the filmmaker, and how here's a film that lets you in. It may be pushing you away as well, but it's inviting all of this th- this stuff that you could be bringing to it, um, and it's. I, whether I like something or not, enjoy it or not, 
just as there's a humility and an openness to writing that I re- that I respond to, that also extends to films too. That makes sense, and it almost it makes it's logical that 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 would extend itself. That if a film lets me in too, if it's arguing with me as I'm arguing with it back, if it's anticipating uh, my boredom and then has something to say about that, um, that's something I want to get into it with. You know, rather than this thing that exists exactly as it is, and I can appreciate that and commend it and write about it, fine, fair enough. And I love a lot of things like that. But there's another level of of excitement and engagement that I think have for 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 works that let me in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. Um, is there anybody that you wanted to mention that you didn't? Anybody? No, not particularly. No. I mean, no, I think we covered a lot of ground. So. Yeah. No. I mean, I I I, I would only say like among contemporary writers, I I. I Viola, I love reading you. I love reading uh, Melissa Anderson and Nick Pinkerton and a lot of the people associated with Vershot still, like Michael Koreski, I think is a brilliant. Um, and uh, sort of such, it kind of pisses me off. There's certain people who are so brilliant and, and good at it and adept uh, at it that they, as much as I, I enjoy reading, I also get pissed off. Because um, they make it seem so easy. Because <laughs> yeah. sometimes you'll read your own stuff and you're like, oh, I can still feel the pain of like yeah, trying to sure. make this work. Which I, but I but I kind of like that too. Like Marcus, I kind of like the struggle, but but there are some people who are just so fluent at it. Um and uh, you know, I think I came to the Village Voice at a slightly different time. So the era of Dennis Lim and Michael Atkinson and Jay Hoberman and Amy Taubin was really important to me because those were again four very different writers writing for that publication and somehow all adding up to 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 a vision or at least a spectrum of, of of how to write about film. So that's all. That's those are things that I didn't get a chance to mention before. Right. I mean, if I, if I, I I'm not going to name people just because I will inadvertently, inevitably hurt the feelings of someone <laughs> I really like. See, I, I don't mind that at all. <laughs> I, I just I I don't want to be looked at with a sense of injury. Um, <laughs> I, I, but I I mean I'll I'll just say I I read. I read a ton of criticism. I really like it. There's so much more of it than uh, there was when I was starting to write. And I I like the profusion of voices, including developing voices, including voices who haven't fully figured out who they want to be yet. Um, sometimes they can really hit it, and that's exciting to, to see. There's There's... You know, if people are honestly engaged with movies and they know how to write... I'm probably going to read them. Well, on that positive note, <laughs> let's, uh, in the spirit of last 10 films, let's go around the room and say one film that you saw recently uh, that you really liked. Eric? Make me go first every time. Okay, fine. Um, no, 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 no. I'm fine. I'm up for the challenge. You uh, said you liked the struggle. <laughs> I do. I do. Um, well, I mean, I, I was at Sundance uh a couple weeks ago or a week and a half ago and there's a lot of things from that that I'm still thinking about and trying to write about or holding for later in the year when I can see it a few more times and think about it. Um, but I think the film that I, I'm, I'm I, there's this film Camera Person mm-hmm. by Kirsten Johnson uh, that is unlike anything I've seen and unlike anything that we're going to see uh, coming uh, at any point in the future because it's full, it's wholly unique in that it's um, some I don't know if anybody. I'll, I'll briefly get into what it is because it, it might be something that readers, listeners, uh, don't know about. But it's uh, it's it, Kirsten Johnson's this uh, DP, a camera, a, a cinematographer and camera person, and has been for a long time, several decades. And uh, in working through 
I guess, what uh, it means to be a camera person, what it means to have seen what she's seen and become the person that she is because of her work, she started asking around and basically asked permission from all of the directors that she's worked with to have access to the raw footage and then go through that footage and start playing around with it and seeing what themes might come up and seeing what ideas are, uh, would, would come up. And, and, and through that process, she's made a film that is without voiceover um, and she's barely visible in the film that every shot comes from the point of view of the person holding the camera and communicates what it's like to be the person holding the camera in various situations. Um, that already I, I heard about this film and I knew her of her work. You know, she's worked on Laura Poitras's films. She's worked on Kirby Dick's films. She's worked on, on Michael Moore's films. She's somebody who's been around a, a lot and is very well regarded. I was already excited about the idea of this thing because I, I get in, these are things I get into. And then seeing the execution of it is it's, it's sublime and it's and it's uh, it, it's it's devastating and uh, <clears throat> confessional. She's showing you the sort of footage that we talk about in theory and that people like to sort of ask about in Q and A's. Oh, so uh, how come you didn't intervene in that situation? Why did you hold the camera? She shows you moments where she didn't intervene, and she allows you to think wow, I don't know why she didn't do that, or I totally understand why she did that. And what it does by sort of basically confessing all of this, it basically, it completely humanizes the entire process. And so you are feeling deep empathy for everyone you're seeing on camera because she's somebody who is shooting things in a deeply empathetic way. You're also showing, feeling empathy for her decisions, right or wrong, because you are, she's letting you sort of in on 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 the different paths that anyone that a filmmaker could take at any time. Um, I think in this particular moment, not only is this a, I think a kind of a masterful essay film. In this moment, what a great moment for it because we're talking about uh, Mark. You were saying before this, uh, we're in a we're in a moment we're in an era where there's sort of a right or wrong answer to things. There's a right or wrong way to make a film, right or a wrong way to write about. There's a right or wrong right or wrong person to make a film or to write about a film. And here's this sort of white woman in these areas where she's the only white woman around and you can question why she's there and she's allowing you to question why she's there. And I think in the end it becomes much less about uh, right or wrong and more about, wow, I've got a lens onto what it's like to be a person with this job in this situation. And it makes me think of my life and my job and the way that I interact with the world. So. I think it's amazing. <laughs> Sorry. That sounds great. Yeah. I want to see it. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> you know, um, I saw at the last New York Film Festival uh, a very, very dark uh, dystopian comedy called The Lobster, which is about mm -hmm. to open in New York, that uh, was at a full press screening. And it was the only movie I saw at the festival that you could absolutely feel split the room down the middle. Um, there were people who just loathed it, including a number of walkouts. There were people like me who loved it. I mean, I did not know what it was going in. It's an English-language movie starring a completely committed Colin Farrell. Um, I almost don't want to tell you too much uh, about what the plot is, except that I think it, it would fit in a way really nicely... Uh, on the bottom half of a double bill with uh, Spike Jones's film *Her*, in that it's it's a genuinely fresh take on the deep, deep difficulty of making human romantic connection um, that goes places 
I really haven't seen a film go. And I, I'm being cagey about it just because the experience of it for me going in not having read reviews, it's funny to say that after this long talk about criticism, but sometimes that is just a complete blessing. Uh, I did not know where it was going. I couldn't believe how far they went with it and how completely uniformly um, on the same page the cast and the production team clearly were and that's always a thrilling feeling in any movie where when you feel that everybody involved is making the same movie mm. um it's uh so clearly not going to be to everybody's taste and i the funny thing is i wouldn't for a minute tell somebody who hated this film that they were wrong or uh tell somebody who was repulsed by this film that they were wrong i think with very, very dark comedies, there should be a split. If everybody <laughs> reacts in the same kind of knowing, pleasured way, then the movie has probably pulled some of its punches. And um, everybody is not going to like this. Some people are going to love it. Some people uh, hate it. I really loved it. And I, I would urge people to give it a chance because I, I don't think you'll see another movie like it uh, for a while. It's... There's not going to be a sequel to The Lobster or a lot of lobster imitators. Um, and and uh, I think it's just a really special, interesting, unique movie. I agree with you down the line. And what I'll just sort of say that to, to support that is that uh, rare, the, rare is the film that, as you said, is not trying to play both sides and satisfy every member of the audience. Not only is that <clears throat> the case, but it's it's such a clear point of view that though there's elements in the film that resonate with me in terms of, of my love life or, or how I view uh, romantic entanglement, it goes so far toward that point of view that, of course, it, it, it exceeds whatever my, my, my opinions might be, but that's okay. Like, I don't need to see my perspective reflected in this movie. It's fantastic to see somebody else's take and go all the way with that and appreciate it for what it is. Yes, and it does go. Uh, I, I feel like when we say you can't believe how, how far it goes or it goes all the way, it sounds like we're being sort of coy about either explicit sex or explicit violence. Mm. It's it's not that. Mm. It's thematically explicit, which is really rare and exhilarating mm. and, and so much fun, at least for me, to see a movie have 100% the courage of its very unusual conviction and to carry it out all the way mm -hmm. absolutely and, so and if people want to hear more about the lobster or after they see it you can go to the nyff 15 roundtable where we get into this and we take a very some interesting questions from the audience or at least the audience had some interesting right. things to say right. about uh their experience watching it um and my film to close uh one of the one of the great straight white men of film Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. I love it. I watched it again last night. And it's funny to me to think of, you know, we were talking earlier about formats. I've seen it as a teenager on my 13-inch combination TV VCR that was in my bedroom. And then I saw it on a plane, like a, a trans, like a transatlantic flight. Wait, then, the, the TV, the VCR was built into the TV. Yes. Those were amazing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it changed Sorry. my life. It really, yeah. it literally changed my life. Um, uh, and then I last night I watched it on like a, a big flat screen TV, and it was. I mean, it really it struck me in a completely different way, where I could see these amazing painterly compositions and just the way that the candles 
distorted the way that the image looked and just it was it was just so awesome to watch it like that and i fell in love with it all over again so did you watch it episodically at all did you take breaks no interesting all the way through well i had to well no i had to restart it because i watched it through this service called sling and then like it was like in use <laughs> somewhere else and then so then i had to rewatch ben Mankwitz's uh introduction but it was fine <laughs> Did you turn out all the lights in your living room and use only candles to? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna try that tonight. And did you Sorry. powder your face? <laughs> I put on my special hat, <laughs> my viewing hat with but, feathers. Uh. <laughs> but the reason I asked about that, but not to belabor it, but the, one of the reasons I asked about stopping it because I do think that's actually one of those movies that would be interesting to look at episodically mm-hmm. because it's attempting to mimic a classic novel. Oh, absolutely. There is something about it that actually wouldn't necessarily be ruined if you if you walked away from it every now and then. Yeah. Well, my cat was trying to distract me. (laughs) Such is her life. But thank you both for coming. It was wonderful to have you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to the Film Comet podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.